Open then. And we'll be in John 19, looking at Jesus' crucifixion, starting at 16 all the way to his death in verse 30. I know it's not Good Friday, but we're still going as we get ready for Good Friday. There's a Clausen trait that if you know my family, you uh, are very familiar with it. In fact, there's some of us in my family who don't do it, who are, uh, make fun of the rest of us who do. Um, but my grandfather did it, my dad does it, I do it, my kids do it, and it's this. Well, some of my kids. Uh, if we're determined to do something, like if we're working on something with our hands, let's say it's the car, or we're building something, or something like that, we stick our tongue out. It's like a sure sign of determination for, for, for those of us who do it in my family. It's something that we do when we're trying to accomplish a goal. And even though today is Palm Sunday, it is the beginning of a week called the Holy Week, and it marks a day where Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, we are getting closer and closer to that Good Friday. And in the passage that we're looking at today, we actually see the beginning of what would be Good Friday as Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Lamb of God, is crucified. And as I think about that, I think about how much determination is involved in Jesus Christ walking down that road to Golgotha. It's a different type of determination than what I would do because my determination doesn't guarantee an outcome. In fact, most of the time, it makes a bigger mess and I have to call for help. But Jesus' determination is perfect. It's actually been foreknown, foretold. And as there's anything that John has instilled in us as we've looked at this, at his book, at his account of Jesus' life, is this, is that none of this is voluntary. That there's a mission, there's a sovereignty of God, there's the providence of God, and it's all there to accomplish a goal to rescue his people. One pastor introduced this section by saying, if you can read this passage with a deep sense of of humanity's debt to Christ, you must have a very cold and very thoughtless life, thoughtless heart. And here's the thing, though, because if you're like me and you grew up in the church, you've heard this I don't know how many times. And it's easy to become cold and heartless to this story. If you, didn't have that, if you don't have that relationship with Jesus... Let me also tell you this, that this is the love that Jesus is determined to show his people. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them in John chapter 19. We'll be at 16b all the way to 30. The word of the Lord says this. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote on an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. 
So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but, you know, rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. As we come into this time of continuing to worship our God and, 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 and preaching and the hearing of God's word preached, we take time to pray. We pray for other churches here in London, and you've probably caught on to that very quickly. We pray for uh, specific churches. We pray for all the church here in London that we may gather to make disciples of Jesus Christ and that we would make his name known. But in this time, let us not forget other things that we're called to pray for, like our governments like our brothers and sisters here at Knollwood who are struggling with sickness and health, who are unable to be here. Let us also continue to pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world, including Ukraine, that God may be glorified in all of that. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for today and the chance we have to gather to worship you. We want to make much of your name. We want to declare who you are. We want to learn more of who you are. So, Lord, I pray for all the churches here in London who are gathering the same way for your body that is gathering both locally in London, Ontario, and Canada, the whole world. And, Lord, we pray that they would gather as they gather, that your people would be refreshed and renewed, and that they would be encouraged to go out to be faithful disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we specifically think of Compass Community Church that you would bless them as they seek to be faithful, that you would give wisdom and, and direction to Pastor Joey as he shepherds the flock along with the other elders that are there. May you be glorified in that church and may you bless them as they seek to be faithful to you. And Lord, as we come and we gather to worship you, we pray that indeed you are glorified, that you are lifted up high. I want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you and praise your name. And Lord, there's no way I can do this on my own, so by your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with necessary power and appropriate affection. Use this sermon, Lord, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. Once again, in this passage, we see how God uses a wicked system to fulfill 
his word as they crucified the Lamb of God. He was, we see his determination to accomplish the mission that his father sent him to do. To fulfill and to obey his father. So in verses 16 to 22, we see the king of the Jews. In verse 17, we see that Jesus goes out as they've taken him. And he went out bearing his own cross. Carrying that cross beam that would be later hoisted up on that stake that was in the ground where he would be crucified. And as Jesus was marched down the street, he would have been possibly stripped naked as he was walking, beaten, swollen, inflamed, bleeding, and walking down the street with the cross, the beam across his shoulders, naked. Not too long ago, I was reminded of something kind of similar to this, that I was watching Boba Fett, which is a Disney Star Wars thing. And these important people, these important people in the show, they were all being carried around by people on these giant things, these beds. And as I thought about it, it's amazing how throughout our world we see many circumstances. It could be politicians or CEOs or whoever of importance. They have people that follow behind them carrying their stuff for them. But here's Jesus, the creator of the world, the one whom through all things have been made, carrying his own cross, walking his own journey to where he would be crucified. He carries his own cross. So let me ask you this question, because I think it's a really important one. Because we are called to be a disciple of Jesus, which means a follower of Jesus. Could Jesus have demonstrated any greater long-suffering humility than this? But let me ask you, do you even know what long-suffering is? Because I had to look it up. The dictionary calls it patience, forbearing, tolerance, uncomplaining. Another sentence would be like, the patience of Job. Stoical, resigned. It's actually the complete opposite of much of what we see in our world and maybe even in the church where there's impatience and complaining can be a big theme. So as a disciple of Jesus, how are you working towards that as we see the one who is deserving of all things, carrying his cross, determined to go to his execution to pay the price that he, he doesn't have to pay? It was no sin that he created. He was innocent. He is guiltless. How do you react when events in your life aren't going the way that you want? Is your attitude more reflective of the Savior that we see here? The one who died for you? If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit that indwells in you and, and is making you more like Christ. We call that sanctification. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect, but there will be progress. Is this not exactly why those who are disciples of Jesus are called to long-suffering? It's the character of the one who, claim, who, who claims to be Jesus's, Christ's. Galatians 5 says, put on the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Literally long-suffering. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Ephesians 4 verse 2 says, With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 1 says, Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and what? Patience with joy. Colossians 3 12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. There's nothing that Jesus or God does, calls us to do and to be that he's not already exemplified for us. And Jesus demonstrates that as he takes his cross and he bears his cross, and he walks to this place of Golgotha. Think how our lives would be affected if long-suffering were exhibited in individual relationships and family relationships, church relationships, and workplace relationships. I know the old stuff we struggle with, and it often rears an ugly head off times, but we can have short fuses and want to strike back at people who offended the, with unkind words or unforgiving spirits. But do we see what Jesus is doing as he's walking to the cross to pay the price for your sin, not his? And here's the cool thing. Like I said, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells in you and you are and he gives you the strength to say no to retaliation, to show forgiveness and a long-suffering attitude to those people that you think are unforgivable. Why? Because of how God is long-suffering with us, we can and must be long-suffering with others. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I hope this narrative shows you how there is a ripple effect that comes out in the life of those who believe that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior, who shows long-suffering, humility as he takes his cross to Golgotha. Look at his determination to accomplish the will of his Father. Isn't our God great? In verse 18, we see him continuing to march down. There they crucified him. As this procession approaches the hill of Golgotha, the, skill, the, the place of the skull, Jesus would begin to see through his blood-soaked eyes as his eyes would go up the hill with the stakes in the ground where he would later be lifted up high. It would be there that they would finally crucify him, that they would take that cross beam that he has been carrying and they would hoist him up on these stakes. One commentary observed that in the second century and earlier, Jewish tradition was to, to hang the Passover lamb and fillet them. To hang them up on iron hooks. Jesus here is hanged. And I'm reminded of John 1.29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they crucified him. And I don't think we fully comprehend these words. I don't think I fully comprehend these words. 
They're, they're, they're really the worst words possible when you think about it. Jesus, the word of God, Jesus who is the definition of goodness, no indictment, completely innocent, nailed to the thing he created by the people he created. To pay the price for the people he has chosen. To redeem them back. And we cry about injustice all the time. But there is no greater injustice than what is taking place here. But there is no mistake. This is a mission and their determination. This is a sovereignty that is taking place. And as they crucified him, think about how sensitive your hands and the top of your feet are. Sometimes I find myself rubbing my hands like this. I find it relaxing. So if I'm like anxious or something, I'm just like this. Or I do my wrists. Right? People are smiling, so I'm not the only one that's crazy. <laughs> but just think about that. Think about the nerves and the skin and the muscle and the bone that are in those areas. The complexity of, of, your, of your feet. Like, if you break your foot, you're in rehab forever. You know? Like, ask, ask Beth. She's shaking her head up and down. Now think about the agony. And the pain as those nails were driven into his hands and his feet. But there aren't wounds, these aren't wounds that would cause death. They cause more agony. He's already been beaten, whipped, mocked, walked, miles, bearing a cross on the shoulders that have been whipped. You know, I've been to the Middle East, it's hot. Very hot. Now imagine hanging on the cross with those wounds for two or three days, crying for death because there was no, re- because there was no other relief possible. And as you're crying out for those two to three days, because that's how long it would take someone to normally die on the cross, you're not getting any relief. This is the punishment that Jesus does for you and for me, for his people. This is what Jesus willingly endured for sinners, hanging exactly fulfilling what has already been prophesied in John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I came across this quote about, from a, a physician from the 1600s, a German physician describing crucifixion. It's not overly bad, so bear with me. I think it's going to be on the screen. Oh, there it is. The unnatural position and violent tension of the body cause a painful sensation from the least motion. The nails being driven through parts of the hand and feet which are full of nerves and tendons and yet at a distance from the heart, create the most exquisite anguish. The exposure of so many wounds and lacerations brought on inflammation, which tended to become gangrene. And every moment increased the suffering. 
In the distant parts of the body, more blood flowed through the arteries than could be carried back to the veins, and hence too much blood found its way from the aorta into the head and the stomach, and the blood vessels of the head became pressed and swollen, and the general obstruction of circulation caused an internal excitement, exertion, and anxiety more intolerable than death itself. And there was the increasable misery of gradual increasing and lingering anguish. To all of this, we may add burning and raging thirst. And all of this was a voluntary act. All of it. A sovereign act. A providential act. To save his people. In verse 19... Pilate comes around and he's trying to mock not only Jesus, but also the people who manipulated him into crucifying Jesus. So he gets a sign made up and he, he puts it around Jesus' neck. So as he walks down the street on his way to Golgotha, everyone can see why he's being crucified. He's being crucified for the very things that Pilate has actually deemed him innocent of or finding no guilt in him. So everybody walking down would see why this person is to be crucified in this most horrific death. And this is the means by which God would bring atonement for his people. What type of determination is needed for someone to innocently and quietly go to his execution? We've all watched different shows or maybe we've seen some sort of Facebook video or something of someone who's adamant about their innocence. And as they are being brought to jail, what is their general reaction? Not quietness. They're fighting and they're screaming and they bring in other officers to drag them out. But here Jesus is quietly going to the place that we all know he's innocent of so that he can atone for his people. You see how easy it is to become so callous if you've listened to the story so many times. But we have to put it in perspective of who Jesus is. He's not just a man. He is God. And he's paying the price for my sin and yours. His determination comes through to accomplish the will of his Father. He surely is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus actually prophesied about these very things back in Mark in, eight, in chapter 8 to 9 and 10, and even in John, in John 9, 8 and 12. And none of these events was outside of God's plan. John puts a big emphasis on Jesus' sovereign control over his situation. And think about this. The only time in our accounts that we have of him talking is the only time he corrects Pilate. When Pilate says, do you not know who has authority to take your life away? And Jesus' response is, no, that's not your job. That's mine. But the rest of the time, he's quiet. As a lamb led to the slaughter. 
This is not a mistake. Jesus isn't a victim. He's a redeemer. He is a savior. And there's a big point being made in that. If it's not a mistake, then this isn't just a man being led to a crucifixion. This is a procession. That sign is not just a sign of mockery, it's truth. Regardless if Pilate knew it was true or not, it was a declaration of something true. King of the Jews. He was trying to mock God and the people who are watching with approval. And here's the irony. Peter, Pilate writes these words in every language so that all who watch will know a truth. Jesus is king. But here's the thing. Jesus is not only king of the Jews, he's also king of the world. And Jesus was unjustly crucified, dying to take the punishment that was meant for his people, for their sin. And here lies the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. But it doesn't end there. Easter's coming, but we'll get there. Which is God's giant stamp of approval for the price that Jesus pays on the cross for our sins. And these words may be an attempt to mock, but they proclaim a great truth. And what is that truth? That this is the means by which God would bring atonement for his people. And his determination to do this is absolutely amazing. Calvin said it this way, that the three languages in Jesus' title was by a secret guidance made a herald of the gospel. So verses 21 to 22, the chief priests, they didn't like this. They didn't like what they had to say. These, these liars and these rebels, these people that have already compromised every law that they possibly have to kill Jesus, who falsely accuse him, these people are now coming to complain, to protest, and he isn't the tr- that he isn't the true king, but only a pretender, and Pilate rejects their complaints. And I think about this. The truth stands no matter the best efforts of God's enemies. Nothing will stop the truth. Matt, uh, an author and a pastor, Matt uh, Smithurst said yesterday on, on that social media network thing that I don't like. On this day in 1945... So yesterday, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged. While being led away, he turned to his fellow prisoner, Payne Best, and said these words, This is the end, for me the beginning of life. After the war, a concentration camp medical doctor reflected on the German pastor's final moments. He says this, I'm not going to try and pronounce his name because I don't know German. Through the half door in one room of the hut, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayers. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensured in a few seconds. 
In almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. How could Bonhoeffer do that? Maybe because he knew Jesus. But there's a difference. There's a very key difference between Bonhoeffer and Jesus. Bonhoeffer wasn't fully innocent. He could or could not have been innocent for why he was in the concentration camp. History argues about that point regularly. He was a sinner, though, just like you and me. Jesus was completely innocent, sinless, never had sinned, not once, and was on his way to pay the price for my sin and yours. And what amazes me about all of this is not so much the gruesome way my Lord and Savior was treated for me, but his determination to do it. And I think to myself, what love does God have for his people? Romans 5, 7 and 9. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And I really want you to dwell on the status you had before God gave you the heart that enables you to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. You were an enemy, yet here Jesus is determined to accomplish his Father's will to be crushed for our iniquities so that we may be made right before him, justified by his blood, made clean. As we sang last week, nothing but the blood. In verses 23 to 24, John takes time to point out something for us that the soldiers who had just accomplished their duty now take Jesus' clothes and they crucify him. In verses 23, they've just finished the bloody work and as instruments of God's sovereign plan and sovereign will, it is now done. And as typical and as typical soldiers of, of finishing their, their gruesome task of execution and torture, they get dibs over the person's possessions. They get to claim it. But not only that, they make a game out of it. And they take Jesus' clothes and you can kind of picture, right? So Jesus is crucified on this cross. I know a lot of TV movies and, and pictures demonstrate Jesus, you know, like six feet up in the air, but he was probably closer to maybe a foot or two off the air because we actually see later that he's having a conversation with John. So he can't be too far away. But here he is, he's looking down and he sees his clothes and, and his items being gambled over. And in Psalm twenty two eighteen 18, is fulfilled at this very moment. They divide my garments among them and my clothing, they cast lots. One person observed, the salvation of the world is being accomplished before their eyes and they gamble for his garments. But it's all done to accomplish God's will. And remember, John's point throughout this narrative is that Jesus, that God is in control, not man. And that's what happens. 
And even in the midst of all of that, in verses 25 to 27, here Jesus is, he's beaten, he's naked. Remember the description of what the crucifixion was like to the body. And he takes time to care for his mom. Another display of the character of Jesus has, as he fulfills the will of his father, he takes time for his mom. He takes deep love to watch a loved one go through this, though. Think about Mary and Mary's sister and Mary Magdalene. As they stand close enough, somehow the soldiers let them get close enough to have a conversation with Jesus as they watch the person that she gave birth to die on the most agonizing way possible. And here is his mother and his mother's sister and Mary Magdalene standing by his side as they watch the one they love beaten and die. Think about what maybe was going through Jesus' mother's mind as he watched, as she watched her son being crucified. Maybe it was Simeon's words in Luke 2, 35. And the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. As far as we can see in this text, all but one man ran away from Jesus, and more than one woman boldly confessed Jesus. As one person put it, women were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. In verse 26 to 27, this here is something that really stands out for me. Even as Jesus is being obedient to the Father and going to the cross, to atone for his people's sin. He is even obedient in honoring his parents. Some of us struggle to honor our parents when it's easy. But here, Jesus is even taking time to fulfill the law in Exodus 20, verse 14, which says, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And Jesus cares for his mother, and there is not one part of the law that he isn't fulfilling. He fulfills his duty as a son to Mary. And in a time of such amazing anguish and physical pain, Jesus is thinking of others. And I look at this and I see Jesus cares for those around him. You know what's a beautiful thing about the Synoptic Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that they give us a different perspective of a beautiful diamond. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. And they give me a different angle. And in Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Or further on in Luke 23, and he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is a display of the character of Jesus as he fulfills the will of his Father, his determination to provide atonement for his people and his heart for those he cares for. And I wonder, and I wonder how that should affect each one of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus. In verse 28 to 30, we see this amazing part where Jesus dies. And as we look at Jesus' death, we need to remember something very important. Jesus is the one that gives himself up. Remember the description I said, it often took two to three days for someone to die as they were nailed to the cross. It took hours for Jesus. It took hours 
This was a voluntary act, and no one took his life from him. He gave it up. He's fulfilling the prophecy that he has already said. Knowing that all was now finished, as verse 28 says, this was a time that Jesus knew was the best time. It was the middle of the day. Everybody was going to be there. Everyone could see what was about to happen. Here at this moment, the worst thing to go through, Jesus bears the wrath of God against the sin in place of his people. You hear the agony of his final act of his atonement for his people in Mark 15, verse 34, which says, In the ninth hour, Jesus cried from aloud, Elohi, Elohi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he does all of this to fulfill scripture. Even Jesus' thirst and the wine are all part of the prophecies of the Bible. In, in Psalm 69, verse 21, it says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And we see in Matthew 27, remember, the Gospels are a diamond. You can look at it at different angles, but you still see the same diamonds. Jesus rejects wine. And wine is often a way to numb pain. We even see that in Proverbs. Do not forsake giving strong drink to those who are suffering. And he rejects it. But here he takes the wine that wouldn't numb his pain to declare these three final words, it is finished. And what does it mean to be finished? It's a simple question. It means to be done. I can't say that my house is finished. I've lived there for over three years and it still needs to be finished. In fact, I just thought I might start another project before I've even finished the other ones. I can't say I'm done learning or growing in my knowledge and my understanding in my life on this side of the grave. I'm never done. So what does it mean to be finished? Do I even really understand what it means to be finished? On this side of the grave, I don't think we do. Even if I say I finally painted my house, it's not long after that that I have to paint it again because I'm a fit parent. But I do remember one instance when I think I was really finished. And that was when I paid off my student loans. Praise God. It took a while. When I finally paid that final check and I said, I'm done, finally. It was complete. Here Jesus is atonement for his people, the payment for the price for our sins. He's finished. There is no more work to be done. It is done. Not like my house. But the payment is final. The final payment has been done. And when the final payment was done, he gave up his spirits. 
Jesus gives up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. He gives it. He lays it down, as he said in John 10, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. What did you say? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And Jesus controls the narrative. He controls it all, and he is determined to go to the cross, and it amazes me. It humbles me. It blows me away. It causes me to worship. So what do we do with this? This is the means by which God would bring atonement for his people. His determination to do this is absolutely amazing. And here is something that I see so evident. And Jesus' long-suffering determination to bring atonement for his people shows the extent he loves his people. As I said, as one person observed, you can't read this passage without a deep sense of your own debt to Christ. If you don't, you must be very cold and have a very thoughtless heart. And we are reminded of a few things from this passage. Here we see how God uses a wicked system to fulfill his word and crucify the Lamb of God. This is not a voluntary thing. And we see Jesus' long-suffering determination to bring atonement for his people. But why? why? Why does God love us so much? What have I done? What have you done? We were reminded today that you can't do anything. You can't do enough good. You can't even do enough evil if your gods are gods. It doesn't mean that you continue to live in sin. I must preface that. If anything, you and I this week have just demonstrated over and over again how much we don't deserve this. He shows his love by pouring it out on undeserving people who are in rebellion against him. But again, why? Why has he chosen to lavishly and sovereignly pour out his love on his people? And I think the answer is in 1 John 4, where we see God's essential nature as love. And how does he show that? He shows his love by pouring it on undeserving people who are in rebellion against him. But let me define what God's love is, because I think our world has really twisted this. It's not some sort of sappy, sentimental, like romantic comedy love. That would be very cheesy. The Bible describes God's love as what is called agape love. It is a self-sacrificing love. That is the kind of love that moves Jesus forward in his long-suffering determination to bring atonement for his people. It shows the extent of his love for his people. I was reminded about that even this morning as we were listening to some music, and my kids like Hawk Nelson. It's an old band. And there was a song in there that talked about God's love. So God shows his sacrificial love by sending his son to to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and by drawing us to himself. 
by forgiving us of our sin, our rebellion, our, our, our treason against him, and by sending the Holy Spirit to indwell within us, which enables us to live and to love as he loved us, to have long-suffering as he has exemplified to us. And he did, not, and he did this in spite of the fact that we did not deserve it. Because, as Romans 5 eight says, we were all sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what amazes me about our God, who our God is, is that he, his love is personal. He knows each individual and loves us personally. The Bible talks about how intimately he knows us, how he, he knitted us in our mother's womb, how he knows the number of hairs on our head or lack thereof or whatever. Ephesians 5 points us to how he loves the church. And not only that, because of how he loves the church, he calls husbands to love our wives in the same way. And this is a type of love that makes Christians different as we are called to love each other with the same love that he shows us. And why does God love us? It is because of who he is. And how does he show us that love? Because Jesus' long-suffering determination to bring atonement for his people shows us that. And what does... And, and what does being confronted with these truths mean for you and for me? I think there might be three things, possibly more. First, our hearts may become hard to this good news. It's true. As we have been told before through other people, the same sun that melts wax is the same sun that hardens clay. Or, the other response is we fall on our knees. We fall on our knees in, in worship and repentance, knowing that it is our sin that nailed our Lord and our Savior to the cross, to believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again, and to rest in that grace, knowing that I can't work to gain God's grace in my life. He paid that price already. And for some reason, he chose us, chose me, chose you. I think the third thing that comes out of this, the determination we see that Jesus had for you and for me, the love that he has shown you and me, that it should push us out, should it not? It shouldn't just be something we kind of hold in our own hearts and say, praise Jesus, and then we walk out these doors and nothing changes. It should change our lives. And it should push us out to declare the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins and he rose again. This doesn't allow us to do nothing. And if it does make you do nothing, then I would go back to the statement by J.C. Ryle about your cold heart. It means that our identity is no longer found in who we are, but whose we are. It allows us to give up this world for something greater. It allows us to be bold. It allows us to be no longer embarrassed for Jesus. I remember growing up, I was talking with a friend of mine about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, we were praying together at Kelsey's, just on the street there. And we got up and we laughed, and I guess there was two guys in the booth next to us who were kind of mocking us. And I was like, as we were talking about it, walking out, I thought to, 
he said that, and I was like, oh man, there was a time in my life where I refused to pray in a public place because I was embarrassed. Well, it's amazing what the Holy Spirit does. There's a time in my life where I would be crying just standing up here too. As I reflect upon this, this enables us to love each other in the ways that are foreign, that are foreign to this world, to this city. It's evidence that we are loved by how we love one another. So Jesus' long-suffering determination to bring atonement for his people shows the extent he loves his people. I really hope you know that you are loved. If you're in Christ, you are deeply loved. He did a lot for you. How about we worship him together? Father God, we thank you for today and the chance we have to worship you.